Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. We're going to be in chapter 26 of Isaiah. And, you know, we all, we all want peace, don't we? I mean... The world has been longing for peace, for safety, peace among the nations. And and it seems that it's always, a lot of times, gets centered on Israel. Everybody's trying to make a peace treaty with Israel. But individually, we we want peace in our families, right? We, We want peace in our relationships, in our communities, in our nation, in the world. But, but I think the one place where I believe we want peace more than anything else is peace within ourselves. Many times, many of the struggles that I have in my life are because I'm not at peace with myself. I'm not at peace with where God has me. I'm not at peace with what I am doing and how I'm doing it. Because what happens is peace within us and, and peace a lot of times in our relationships has a tendency to elude us. And Scripture promises, God promises us perfect peace, but which is what peace, peace means. Whenever you see something, actually the word perfect peace is not in Scripture. What they do is they put peace, peace, and as you add the word, you repeat the word, it becomes more refined. So when it says peace, peace, it means perfect peace. So if you read your Bible and you see perfect peace, understand it, it says peace twice. And it seems today in our world that perfect peace seems impossible. I mean, we, we can see it. We, we know what it looks like. We, we, want, we know what we want. And yet, it always seems outside of our reach. There's something that happens that pulls that peace away from us. The great musical theologian Jimi Hendrix, and I use that term loosely, said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Now, I I don't condone Jimi Hendrix, what his lifestyle was, the music he did. I'm not condoning any of it. But you must understand that he did what he said in that phrase, makes a lot of sense. We we can't have peace until the love for power is gone. Now, what he missed was the fact that we know what the power of love is. The power of love is the cross. And until that is central in our lives, the love for power in its many forms will be counterproductive to peace. It will continue to pull that peace out of our reach. Think about it in your relationships. We want to have power in our relationships. We want to be in control of our relationships. And yet when there's conflict, what do we do? We should go and we should take the cross with us and love them, the person we have conflict with, and deal with it 
and accept it and move on from it, but what do we do? We want to hang on to it because we control it. Same thing happens in our international peace. Everybody wants to control the situation. And they forget that the power of love needs to overcome the love for power. Now, we all know and should know by now that the true power of love is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And true peace, true perfect peace is only attainable if we we let go of the desire to have power over our own lives, power over the lives of others, power over the lives of this world, and we need to surrender it to the true power of love that is only found in the cross. Because perfect peace can only come from God. So let's go to Isaiah 26. Here's what it says. And remember what has happened. Uh, we, we had God judging the world a couple weeks ago. Then we had, we had the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now we're, we're, we're continuing on with this. Isaiah says, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Because remember, remember, everything now, it, it gets, we, you know, we focus right now a lot on Israel. It's amazing how such a small country gets the tension of the world so easily. It would be like the world focusing on New Hampshire or New Jersey. It doesn't happen. But every day it focuses on it. But now everything, everything is focusing on Israel at this time. And we're in Judah. And this is a song that will be sung. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, or peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. See, in that day, God, God judges the world. And we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now we're seeing this song of praise that is being sung. But it's it's more than just praising God. This this song is is about why we can praise God and and what is it going to do. So again, we see this city of God. We we talked about it a little before. We talked about how Augustine wrote the book City of God. And and we have two things. We have the city of man and we have the city of God. Which one are we building? City of God obviously is the kingdom of heaven. The city of man is earth and where we are now and what a lot of people are building today. But what happens is the city of God, the gates are opened up. The the city is no longer afraid of an attack or invasion. What what would happen is a city would close their gates whenever an attack was coming. And and it would take days and months to, to tackle that wall and to tear it down or to dig under or you'd starve out the people who were in the city. It's not a problem anymore. The actual gates are wide open. I mean, think about, about the fact that when, when Isaiah was writing this, the people of Israel would have had hope because their gates were probably closed a lot because the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and this one and that one, it was constant. They had, this brought them hope. 
But this, this hope also reaches over the years to you and me. Because the question is, who is able to enter that city? The faithful nation. Because we, we too find hope in this song. The gates are open. But the faithful nation is the one that can go in. And who are part of the faithful nation? The people who keep the faith. So as believers in Christ, we are able to enter into the gates. You know the song, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Yeah, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about this. The fact that we, as believers in Christ, will be able to enter the gates because we're a faithful nation. But see, the thing we have to remember, though, is that the, the, the faith that we have... We don't have it because of self-determination. I cannot sit here and tell myself, I have faith in Christ, I have faith in Christ, and I have, I mean, over and over again. I can't say I'm going to, I'm going to be so persistent that I'm going to have faith in Christ. That's not how it works. We cannot do it. We can't exert our will to have faith. The only place we get faith is from Jesus Christ himself because of what he did on the cross. He gives us that faith. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. This is what it says. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. God did that. Not me. He says, By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. When, when, and, and, and some people say, well, you know, we're trusting in God as a work. No, it's not. It's a decision. It doesn't take a whole lot of work to, to trust in Christ. It really doesn't. But when we place our trust in Christ, he gives us perfect peace. But we have to intentionally keep our minds on Christ. And we need to continually trust in him. We're, the work we need to do comes after we have faith and we have salvation. We have to begin to keep our minds on Christ. Because see, the Christian life is not what we give to God. We, we, we kind of think it does. You know, I, I, I serve here and, and, and I do this. I give my tithe. I, I help the poor. I help the needy. I serve and I, I help do these things. And we think, that's my Christian life. That's not your Christian life. That's what you're doing in response to the life that Christ has given you. Because it's, it's a gift from God. God gives us a Christian life, which is our faith in Christ. And he gives us peace. He gives us wholeness. He gives what really is authentic humanness. What, what, we, what we see in the world today, people running around, living their lives, and just doing the crazy things that people in this world do, that is not humanness. Not the way God intended it. Not the way it was meant to be. 
But we also have to remember that God doesn't just do this because he's in a good mood. You know, we've all been there, and we know, we watch when our parents are in a really good mood, and that's when we ask them the big questions. You know, hey, can I have the car, or, you know, our, our kids know how to manipulate us. <laughs> and it's not intentional, it's just it's what they do. It's, we don't go to God, you know, and say, I wonder if God's in a good mood today. I think I'll, I think I'll talk to him now. We don't. He doesn't give us, he doesn't give us, uh, complete us and give us peace, perfect peace when we are, when he feels like it, when he's in a good mood. No, he does it because he has ordained it to be so. His love for us is ordained. It's called. He says it's going to happen. Look at John 3.16. You guys know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whoever believes in him should not perish. It's, it's, it's ordained. If you believe in Christ... You know, if, as, as Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved, and you shall not perish. But if that's what we have, what is the opposite? And, and that's the city of man. It's this constant conflict between the city of God and the city of man. The city of man, there's no peace. Why? Because they refuse to trust in Christ. And because of that, God has to act. Look at Isaiah 26, 5 through 6. He says, For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city, he lays it low, lays it low to the ground. We, we've talked about this. We've talked about the pride and how, how all these nations and all these people were prideful. What is God going to do to it? To these cities, to these people. He's going to lay them low. He's going to cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. See, in, in our pride, man will reject Christ. They'll reject what he is offering us. And what happens, when that happens, when, when our, we allow our pride to take over, it inflates our ego. You know, if any of you know Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley looks in the mirror and says, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, you know. All those kinds of things, trying to reaffirm himself. We don't need that. We have Christ. God loved the world. He gave his son. He loves us so much that he gave his son. We're worth it. And no amount of pride and ego is going to change that. It's going to make it better. Because what happens when we have pride and human ego, it leaves us empty. Because it never satisfies. If you 
I don't think you remember, because I didn't remember this, and I wrote the sermon. But back in Isaiah 2, we saw that God has a plan for the proud and the lofty. In Isaiah 2.12, it says, For the Lord, the host, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, up, and it shall be brought low. I believe that we will stand in front of God, and, and we'll have all the, you know we have this idea of what we're going to talk to God about. You know, God's gonna God's gonna look at me. He's gonna see all these things I've done. I've done. And he's gonna He's gonna congratulate me. And the reality, those things are nothing. We're gonna be in front of Christ, and we're gonna be on our face, not not able to say anything. We can't take pride in what we've done, because it pales into comparison to what God has done for us. And we looked at that day in chapter 24 when God's going to deal with the proud and the lofty. The day of judgment and destruction for those who take pride and reject in their lives and reject salvation through Jesus Christ. But what's interesting about what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 26 is, and God does this a lot, God will use people to fulfill his judgment. A perfect example is the Israelites. The Israelites had turned from God. Does God does God destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah? No. What does he do? He goes in and he sends in a nation, a sinful nation, which you, if you remember, it was kind of, why, I mean, how could you use somebody like this, God? These, this nation is terrible. This nation sins worse than we do. God uses whoever he pleases. You know, many times when I've needed to be humbled, it's usually a non-Christian who humbles me. And it's usually done in a way that I'm like, is God talking to them? Is he using them? So God's going to use people who have suffered the most to trample on the lofty city. Look what it said. What it said back here. It says, the foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. He uses the poor and the needy to trample down the city of man. And we'll see this fulfillment if you look, if you've read 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.8 says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What 1 Samuel says is that the fact that God is God of all creation. He lifts up who he wishes. And at this time, he's going to lift up the poor and needy, and he's going to lower those that look at themselves and are lofty and prideful. Now, Isaiah is going to go next into talking about what's called the path of the righteous. He's going to give us some ideas of what that means in, in verse 7. It starts out, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of your soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. He's saying if, if you show favor to somebody, it doesn't do any good. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't show favor to people. 
it's like my kids. I want my kids to learn. So what do I do? I allow them to make mistakes. Too many times, parents don't allow their kids to make mistakes. They want to save them. I I don't want them to fall down in the stones and skin their knees. Well, if you don't do that, sometimes they're going to run in glass and they're going to fall and they're going to really cut themselves up. So you've got to teach them by allowing them to make mistakes. It says, in the land of, the, of uprightness, he deals corruptly. This is the unrighteous, the wicked, and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. So what does the righteous path look like? What does it look like? I mean, let me ask you, what does your righteous path look like? When you look out past your life, is it level? I I don't know about you. my, My life may be level, right? But I'm not so sure that it was an easy path. But it's level. But this idea of being level does not mean that it's easy and a pleasant walk. I I think too many times and too often, that's what we want. We want, you know, Lord, I I believe in you. Just make it easy for me. Just let me have this nice little walk till I'm done. If you you watch any of the, some of the the really popular megachurches online or on on TV, or uh, especially if you go to the prosperity gospel people and you listen to them at all, You'll find what they'll tell you is, oh, you know, you're just wonderful. You're, you're, you can have the best life now. You can, your life should be perfect. Don't say bad things about yourself. You get up in the morning and you say you're wonderful and you, you speak into your own life what's going to happen. Hogwash. Life is difficult. Life is hard. We've been spoiled by convenience in our society. In this, especially in our Western society. So we want the same thing in our walk with Christ. We want it to be easy. But we're told that there is a cost to our belief. It costs us. It, it, it costs Jesus' life. But it also holds a cost for us. And we must be sure to understand we need to accept that cost. That's, and I'm just going to say this, that's one of my biggest problems over the last few years. You choose to get the vaccine, that's your choice. My problem wasn't that somebody, people were getting it. My problem was that they weren't telling everybody the truth. And you weren't able to evaluate the cost and the benefit. Now this is all coming out and you're finding out, well, the cost is higher than they, than they said. Yeah, they knew it. But we couldn't make that. Well, we need to sit and we need to count the cost of our salvation. What's it going to cost us? Jesus says in Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we read that and we think, man, that's terrible. What do you mean I have to hate my mom and dad? I can't hate my mom and dad. I don't hate my mom and dad. But what Jesus is saying there, he's saying that your love for me has to be so great that your love for everything else and everything that you are pales in comparison. 
and looks like you hate. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. My cross is heavy. We have to bear our cross. Luckily, I can lay it at his feet and he can help me. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? He's saying, you better think twice about whether or not you want to be a believer in Christ because there's going to be a heavy cost, it's going to be difficult, you're going to have trouble. Is it worth it for you? And if it's not, then don't do it. We're not being forced. God doesn't force us to believe in him. He says, otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I'm not saying, he's not saying that we have to give up everything and become hermits and live in caves. What he is saying is, what's first in your life? What's more important to you? Is it your possessions? Is it your family? Is it more important to you than Christ? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? He gave his life. Are we willing to do the same? Because he, God, God is committed to our spiritual growth, not just our comfort. He's not committed to our comfort. Not just our comfort. He wants us to be comforted, but his commitments to our spiritual growth. He's willing to allow us to suffer pain and to struggle so that our wisdom may grow. Because without pain and struggles in our lives, we become spoiled children. We become like the children of helicopter parents who are always flying around the kids, not allowing them to fall and hurt themselves. It wasn't my mom. I have many memories of falling in school and or falling here and falling there, and and I could run to her like one day I ran to her and had blood all over my face because my bike had broken and I'd gone forward. But she wasn't following me in the car behind the bike, right? God allows us to make those choices, allows us to have pain because it makes us grow. We'd be no different than a non-believer who pursues all the things of this world if God did not allow us to have some pain in our lives. So God is so intimate that he tests us and he stretches us because he loves us. And that love is all about sacrifice. And true love remains even when we are persecuted. But see, the lost of the world, they don't see it. God is sitting there. He's got his hands up. He's doing all these things. He, you know, the sun comes up in the east, sets in the west. Got a beautiful sunrise, beautiful sunset. Things grow. God is doing all these things, and the world goes on and doesn't even see it. They don't. They're blinded. They're blinded. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. Satan blinds people. He keeps them distracted. But see, God has ordained peace for those who trust in his name. Back to Isaiah. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. They're dead. They're dead. They will not live. They are shades. They are spirits. They are ghosts. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. You see, what it says in here is he says that Christ has done the work so that you and I can have peace. Because true peace begins with peace between us and God. That's where it begins. Throughout Israel's history, they've had many people who, many nations who've been lord over them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure most of us can, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, we got the, the, the um, Egyptians, the different nations, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, all of them. They were lords who ruled over them. And see, you and I, too, have a tendency to allow lords to rule over us. We allow things to take precedence in our lives and to control us. Sometimes it's an addiction. Sometimes it's a desire. Sometimes it's a person. Those things that we desire more than we desire Christ. And what happens is, is those things seem to oppress us sooner or later, control us. But see, with Christ, those lords no longer have power over us. They're done. Our eyes have been opened to salvation through Christ, but we need to be intentional about seeking Him. And we need to intentionally put those things aside. Anybody who's dealt with an addiction knows they can't just ignore it. They have to put it aside. They have to intentionally say, I'm not going to do this. When they're tempted to do it, God provides a way. They need to find that other way. They put it aside. Because God's just not going to wipe it out. Because if He just wiped it out, what would we, what would we learn? Nothing. And we keep just going right back to it. We have to intentionally put it aside. While we still struggle with our sin nature, we have to intentionally, constantly put it to death. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. Put it to death. Anger, malice. Right? Put them to death. He goes through a whole list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. I thought passion was good. It is when it's directed correctly. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, see, the day is coming 
when what has already been accomplished by Christ on the cross will be seen in the coming kingdom. Right now, it's not. It's, it's here, but not here. You and I can have the most peace possible right now on this earth. It starts with our peace with God and leads to our peace with each other and peace with the world, meaning that the world goes crazy and we don't get involved in it. We don't go down the roads they want us to go down. We get involved in it, but not in a way that they want us to get involved. Because ultimately, the total destruction of the enemies of our souls and, the, and our freedom from his influence is going to occur. The coming kingdom is coming. There is a promised resurrection. Verse 15, he says, But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Which is interesting that Isaiah is saying this at this time because, you know, the enemy is out there waiting. Our borders aren't increased. He's talking future. He says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. We've tried it on our own. We've done everything we can on our own. But what? Guess what's happening? We're just basically, he said, we're just passing a bunch of gas. It's just, it's a bunch of, we're blowhards, full of hot air. He says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. We gotta remember, it's God who sets kings in place. He wants them to do his will. They don't always do his will. I'm not so sure our current administration is doing God's will, but he put them there. He allowed them to be there. I'm not sure past administrations have done always done the will of God. We know that because they're human. But God did place them there. And while in our human abilities, we're never going to be able to attain the promises given to us by God. The impossible is made possible through Christ. The ultimate victory for God is guaranteed by the cross. The righteous who have suffered and died along the way will be resurrected to eternal life. You and I, those that have died in Christ will be raised. Paul, uh, Paul talks about this. And, you know, the church was Thessalonians was worried that the dead in Christ had already risen and they'd missed the resurrection. He says, no, 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 no. You know, you know, you're, you're, you got to wait. And they were worried about the ones who had died. It's like, no, they're going to be risen first, and then we will meet them in the air. There's a promised resurrection. Those who are martyred for their faith are going to receive their just reward. We see that in Revelation when they're under the throne saying, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this to go on? And, and God says, a little longer, and he gives them a rope. There's a lot of symbolism there. And what's going to happen is the nation of Israel is going to be increased. And how's that going to happen? It's going to be us. The Gentiles are being grafted in. As believers, and during the during the time of the tribulation, there's going to be a huge, huge revival amongst Jews who turn to Christ. 
for a little while, we have to wait. For a little while, we have to ride out this storm. That's what he says in verse 20. He says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. I do not think this is telling us to all go out and build bunkers in our backyard. Okay? I think that what this is telling us is that you, we're going to ride this storm of this world. It says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it. Remember back in Genesis when Cain killed his brother? And God says, Where's your brother? And he says, I don't know. Who am I? I'm not my brother's keeper. And God says, his blood is calling out to me from the ground. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. They won't be able to hide it anymore. If you read through Revelation and you look at how and you read it and you look at the judgment, you think how terrible this is. They're not going to be able to hide from God anymore. We we talked about that. I think last week we had that in there where there's or two weeks yeah it was last week or two weeks ago where he says you know the kings they they run to the mountains and they, and they run to the caves and say fall on us fall on us because of, of the of the son of God who's coming you know they want God to they see God coming they want him to watch to fall on them and cover them and hide them. There's no hiding from God anymore. But you and I, while we're here, we're going to have to suffer through this for a season. We have to wait on the Lord. And it's perfect timing. I know, man, there are so many things that have happened in my life. I'm like, Lord, why not now? Why not now? When I was at my most desperate time in my life, I am crying out to God. I have dealt with something for four years. It had been plaguing me for four years. And I tried my best to every way I could think of to solve it. And it didn't get solved. And guess what he told me? Wait. The greatest word I ever heard and the most disappointing word I ever heard from him. Wait. Six months later, he solved the problem. For a while, for a season, we are going to have to deal with this. But in his perfect timing, it'll be all right. And at the right moment, God's going to judge the wicked. He's going to punish them for the persecution of the righteous. And all will be revealed. We see this in Revelation 16. Verse 5 through 7 says, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So again, we must come to Christ. We must wait on the Lord. We must pray for the persecuted believers. All these things we've talked about over the last few weeks. We must learn to rest in our faith, in God alone, living for missions, living for evangelism. Don't get caught up in the petty squabbles and the selfish ambitions of this world. It, it pains me that, that we have conflict in the church, and nine times out of ten, it's over pettiness. Petty, emotional garbage that doesn't have any place. Don't get caught up in it. Love and forgive as you have been forgiven.
Jesus says to us in John, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.